Welcome back to I'm Interested, and here we go with our first significant departure of this podcast. So what I promised you when we launched this was that we would talk about sports every week. The entire function of this podcast was that I would choose people that I find interesting, and I would interview them about the things that make them interesting to me. And we have thus far had fabulous conversations. We talked about football with Amy Trask, and we talked about basketball with Michelle Roberts, and we talked about college football with Paul Feinbaum. But I promised you that we would take a few detours, and here is our first. Um, and I, I will tell a quick story to set this up. So when Mike and I first launched Mike and Mike in 2000, we were sort of an underground phenomenon. And... In 2006, we got on the David Letterman Show. One of the first really big things that ever happened to us was we were invited on the David Letterman Show. And I was so moved because a lot of people who had been fans of ours from the beginning felt a sense of actual personal pride that they sort of knew of us when we were absolutely nothing and there we were now on the Letterman Show. And I remember getting those notes and feeling great about it. So fast forward many years later, it's last, I want to say, November or December. And I see that the impractical jokers are playing Madison Square Garden. And in all honesty, I felt personally proud. I felt so proud of these guys, of Murr and of Q and of Sal and of Joe, otherwise known as the Tenderloins when they tour uh, doing their uh, stand-up comedy. But I feel like I've known these guys back when no one knew them. I was watching that show on True TV with my family back when no one was watching that show. And now, of course, they've become hugely popular. Um, if you don't, if you didn't know them already, you saw the promos running constantly during the NCAA tournament games on True TV. And they have become genuinely, I think, one of the treats of television in our generation. They have a movie coming out. Uh, my guest today has a book that is a an enormous success. If I saw this correctly, it was number one on the bestseller list in the United Kingdom, which is shocking and wonderful. And it is my thrill to welcome James Murray, known to all Impractical Joker fans everywhere as Murr, to I'm Interested This Morning. It is great to have you Thank here. Thank you for having me, Mike. This is awesome. That, what a, what a, that, what, what an intro. I'm going to have you, like, I'm pay you to like follow me around and like say that intro to, to, to people. You know, my mother would be very proud right now. <laughs> well, I mean, I genuinely felt proud of you guys. And, and I, I don't, you know, it's funny. I've worked in television for 24 years. I watch almost no television. And, and most of that is a function of my schedule. I have been getting up at four o'clock in the morning for a very long time. I watch a lot of sports on TV and that's it. I've never seen, uh, Game of Thrones. I've never seen House of Cards. I've never seen any of these shows that people binge watch. I watch Impractical Jokers. <laughs> Uh, my kids and I will sit and we will just watch old episodes all the time yeah. and we will compare when you guys were young and how, and how <laughs> you guys are older and all the fun stuff that you do. Um, I love it. And I will tell you what I love about it is that at a time when it feels as though the world is full of meanness and nastiness and nothing can just be a joke anymore. Like ev everything, and I look, I do that. I, I do this for a living. Everything you say, you have to be so measured and careful because someone's going to take it the wrong way. To watch these four dopey lifelong friends 
making themselves the butt of the joke, humiliating themselves in the way you guys do, it's cathartic. There's yeah. something about it that is cathartic. I can't be the only person who tells no, you. No, that. That, that, that's exactly the construct of the show, you know, and I think that's why the show be, uh, remains uh, relevant and timeless and reminds you of the shows you used to watch when you were a kid that, you, you know, you come home from work, you're tired. You flip on the TV and you just want to relax and forget about things for a half hour. And that's what our show does. And we've always been uh, very uh, respectful of that, that we have that kind of relationship with the audience. I'll tell you a funny story, too. That night you mentioned Madison Square Garden. Yeah. We did a show. You know, the guys and I, we, we're a 13-year overnight success story. We, we failed for years before we succeeded, you know. And uh, we performed live for many, many years in New York City in these little tiny theaters. We did a show 12 years ago. Before Jokers, right? Jokers has been on for about eight years now. We did a show maybe 10 years ago in New York City. We rented a 50-person theater. Two people bought tickets to see us perform. They spent five bucks each, and they were two students of mine. So they kind of had to come, you know? And so we lo- and the theater cost us $65 to rent, so we lost $55, and we split it four ways. Like, oh, here's 12 bucks. And, um, and 12 years later, to sell out Madison Square Garden, I, I took the subway there because I'm keeping it real. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I, I take the subway up from my apartment to the garden. I come out onto 7th Avenue, and no one prepped me that this would be the case. I, I walk up the subway steps, and the whole side of the garden has our photo on it, and it says sold out over it. And fans see me. They come running up to me because it's like an hour before showtime. And I, I was on Instagram Live at the moment, and instantly tears streamed down my face, and I had to end the broadcast quick. And I could not recover from that moment for like a half hour i was so emotional caught up because you know we're we're regular guys that just failed for so long and finally made it and to see that that i mean the greatest venue in the world it was so overwhelming to me you know it's it's i don't know it's just been an absolute dream i can't i can't believe it's still going on Eight years. I can't believe it. And with a movie too i cannot believe it we're going to talk about the movie in the book but to me there's something Different. I, I don't know any other way, but I, I see people who have enormous success when they're very young, and, and, and I cover sports, and that's generally the rule. Sure. I mean, these people become famous now, like the really good basketball players are celebrities when they're 12 and 13 years old, and certainly they're by college age and, and when they enter professional sports leagues, people in their, in their early 20s. But for people like you guys, and I had a similar experience, no one gave a damn about me until I was in my late 30s. Um, it's a different feeling that you have. There's a different level of appreciation that you have for it because you have lived a lifetime sure. without knowing it. And you're already a formed person. Right. You know You know who you are. You know who your friends are and who your friends aren't, more importantly. And you have a direction in life. And I, I'm actually very grateful that we, we finally got on TV in our, uh, our mid-30s, you know, because if I was in my 20s, I, I don't know. It would've been, I would have had better hair. <laughs> but I, I wish I had more hair. But, uh, but it's been, you know, I, I love that it, the timing is as it is now. All right. So, so tell tell everyone, you guys are four guys yep. from Staten Island. Yeah. How did you get from Senor Alonzo's Spanish class? <laughs> and I knew what that was. I I, well, I remember the episode where yeah. they had to go out, and, and, and that was the name of the band, because the punishment was they had to open for Imagine, Imagine Dragons. Yeah. And I, was it Sal and Joe in Sal that and one, Joe, I think? Yeah. And, and they had to go out there and put on like the worst show of all time, and they yeah. introduced them as Imagination Dragons, yeah. which was hilarious. <laughs> I, I believe I know everything about Give you Give a guys. shout out to Pittsburgh instead of uh, <laughs> New York. So how did you guys go from Senor Alonzo's Spanish class at Monsignor Farrell High School in Staten Island? Island 
to playing Madison Square Garden? It was, uh, uh, I mean, very simple. <laughs> like A to B. It was so quick. Uh, I had a huge crush on Senora Alonzo in high school. Yeah, so well, I know I that. Mean, you know. You had to then confront her in, 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 in a later episode. I, I did, remember. you know. Every time she to- said biblioteca, I was just like, mm, you don't give, you give me shivers. Anyways, uh, no, you know, we, uh, we formed a comedy troupe after college. We all went to different colleges and, but loved doing improv together in high school. So we formed our comedy troupe called the Tenderloins and then just put up our own shows for years and struggled forever. We did improv. We tried sketch. And it wasn't until, um, we started filming our sketches for the internet that things kind of took off. And, uh, and then along the way, I had gotten a job. I was unemployed most of my life, <laughs> except when I, uh, spent a year writing the book Awakened. And, uh, I got a job in TV development and started selling shows. And the guys and I started creating TV shows. And, but we had no clue how to succeed in our twenties. You know, nobody, there's no book. On, on how to get on TV. There's no, you can't even get them, uh, to go to college for it because there's no one path that's the same, you know? And, uh, we had failed pilots on different networks, all with the same general hook, which was four best friends, lifelong friends that love each other and just kind of have fun and torture each other. And we have this kind of unique background together. And it's so strange to be, uh, in each other's lives so much for almost 30 years now and you know we have no chance of making new friends at this point so and we uh we had two failed pilots and other networks that didn't go and uh we just i think what happens in your career is you reach a point where you just start stop caring what other people think and we said you know what let's just create an idea that we love that's organic to who we are and and true to our friendship and puts our friendship on display first. So we came up with the idea for Jokers, like an upside-down prank show where it takes away what people don't like about prank shows, which is, oh, I feel bad for the person getting pranked. In our show, we're the willing to participants, so you can't feel bad. These are my friends doing it to me, and I agree to let it be done. So we take away that, that bad part of prank shows. We spun the format upside down, and we did it in a way that puts our friendship on display first. So I think what pulls people into the show is they think it's a prank show it's not it's a hidden camera show where the joke's on us what keeps them is we remind them of the friends they used to have growing up or the the things they used to do growing up and there's just a uh, you can tell that we love each other to death and we literally die for each other no matter how much we know each other like all best friends do and uh, it's just fun to watch it's compelling to watch and the biggest compliment we get is that um, people come up to us like you and say, this is the only show my whole family agrees on. We all get together and watch it. It's like your dinnertime show, which I consider a huge, huge compliment. So so go back then to where you first got the idea, because that's what's fascinating to me. Like, who was it? What do you remember about the first moment someone said, here's an idea for this? So I was working in TV development, my first real job, you know. I, I'd been at the same company for like 12 years now. And uh, the first couple of years was a crash course in how TV was made. Finally, I was learning how to create TV shows, how to write them, pitch them. And I sold a number of shows along the way. And uh, when I was pitching a number of networks, they were telling me that, you know, we're, we're looking for something new, something different. Hidden Camera had been coming back. This is like 2010. And so the guys and I got together a few blocks away. Joe and I were roommates uh, down on Wall Street because we couldn't afford to live in the city apart from each other so we lived together for like five years even during jokers for the first couple of seasons you right? and joe were rooming together the early years of i, I remember yes. knowing that you guys at some point lived together yeah for like five years even during the tv show you know and uh so the guys and i get together we decided to give it one more shot we'd show, sold two other shows didn't go we said you know what 
Three times a charm. Let's try again. So we got together one night over, uh, you know, uh, chicken parm, <laughs> as us Italians from Staten Island do. And uh, we're in Joe and I's apartment. And I said, guys, I, I think, you know, there's hidden cameras coming back. What can we do in the hidden camera space? I bet you we can sell it. And uh, we came up with the idea for Jokers. We didn't want to do a traditional hidden camera show. Uh, so we kind of spun it upside down. We came up with the idea, shot the sales tape on literally on our cell phones. Joe and I edited it together. And then I pitched it through my job uh, to uh, TV networks. And almost instantly, uh, we sold it. I mean, in the first, you know, we pitched three networks and two bid for it. And uh, we, we signed with True TV. And it was an inter- one of those choices in life that you're like, my gosh, life could have been so different because we had... MTV wanted the show, but they wanted to recast us because we're all 35 years old. Right. Uh, they, but they wanted. So they were interested. MTV was interested, but they were going to cast much younger, totally different kind yes, of people. But they wanted the show five days a week, like a game show. Which you know, in the TV world, if you create a game show that's that that gets five days a week, that's that could be big money if it goes many seasons. You know, the, because they do orders of like 60, 80, 80 episodes a season. So it was a real. Uh, conflict. You know, do we do that and just take the check? We were formed guys. I finally had a career in TV development. Joe was like a, the top salesman at a, a high-end baby company. Yeah. You know, she was a, uh, a successful fireman, had received awards for saving multiple lives, and Sal was a bar, owned a bar in Staten Island. So we already had jobs, you know. And uh, and then True TV, to their credit, said, you know what, guys, if you sign with us, we will make you the face of the network. And they were true to their word. They 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 promoted the hell out of the show, the first several seasons, and um, really just kept playing it so much that it took off as a result. And they've been amazing partners as a result. And it was one of those moments in life, though, where you like these choices. You could see either one is very good. And I remember, I, I in my gut, I felt like, you know, we have to try, have to try. We dreamt of being on TV, dreamt of you know being a comedy show, making millions of people laugh. And uh, I remember driving out to Staten Island with Q, to Q's Firehouse in Richmond Avenue at that time. And he came out and I said, Q, I'm telling you, I feel like this this is the right one. you got to trust me on this. And uh, and we all signed on to True TV and that was it. It reminds me of the story, I think I have this right, that Sylvester Stallone, when he wrote Rocky, that he could have sold it. He could have just sold the script and he wouldn't have been the star of it. Yeah. And he would have made some short to good short term money. And he said... But I know I'd regret it for the rest of my life if I didn't take my shot at making this myself. It's really a similar it's story. It's the same story, and it proves itself again and again in our careers and our lives. Like, you just – you can't give up. Uh, you know, just tr- shoot for the top always. Get great at something and keep going. And and then the part of it that I like the most – I say this all the time to people. And anyone who ever says, yeah, I don't like that show because they make fun of people, I would say, you're wrong. You're, then you're not watching. You're just saying that without watching it because they're making fun of themselves. The butt of the joke is always them. Yes. And, and, and so do you remember when that conversation took place? Was that a, a conscious decision? Because to me, that is the success of the show. If you guys had gone the other way, the show would never have worked. I agree. It was a conscious choice uh, when we created the show, even before we pitched it, that the show would be upside down. Because we didn't want, we didn't consider ourselves pranksters or dare, daredevils. As a matter of fact, the, the network in season one, uh, before they greenlit the, the series, they wanted to change the name. The original name was Mission Uncomfortable, which <laughs> is yeah, very accurate. It's not bad. You know? And they changed, changed it to Jokers, but the first, I, the first name they wanted was Daredevils. And we said, guys, that's, that's not the show. You, we're not Daredevils. We, we are, Real guys that struggle with every decision and our moms watch the show and we have loved ones and we have real lives and paranoias and neuroses and the show is about us 
not wanting to do things. It's as funny to watch us say no as it is to watch us actually do something. So that was an, uh, a conscious choice in the show. And what we never predicted, though, was that the show would become a family show. I thought this would be a show, especially because back then True TV was just like a guy's network, a lot of like tow truck shows, things like that, like like alpha male kind of shows. Yeah. We never imagined that the show would become so broad and become a, a family show and, and our biggest fan base would be like kids. I never imagined it would be a family co-viewing show. So it's been... It, it, it's, it, and the daredevil part of it, I will say this. As a person who has a lifelong aversion to confrontation of literally <laughs> any sort or any kind of discomfort, like if when I'd met you it had been awkward, I might have said, you know what, let's not do this. Um, the, fa- the stuff you walk up to people and say sometimes, I do think it takes unbelievable guts. And I can see, like, Joe loves it. Yeah. Q can sort of just internalize it. Yeah. Sal, it scares him to death every single... He Where, is he scared to death. Face. He walks out there into Washington Square Park in every single episode looking scared out he of his mind. He wakes up scared. You know what I mean? He's like, oh. yeah. yeah. And he's, he's like me. He's a germaphobe, which I am too. And so I, I think I, I've always liked that side of it. But I do think... I guess what I'm trying to say is it does take guts to do yeah. what you guys do. It does take guts. Well, it takes some... It takes skill to figure out what, how to navigate around something in a way that doesn't get you punched in the face. You right. Know? Well, that's and, what I mean. And it's a... Con- you, what Have I you ever to... gotten punched in the face? No, there has no, to no, be no. a lot of stuff you've shot that we've never seen. No, like the... you got a lot of foolproof plans. Okay, <laughs> yeah, they, they never were. And, and 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 but there has to have been some really awkward moments that we've just never seen on television. Oh yeah, I mean there, there are so many edgy moments, and to, it, it blows me away what we actually still get away with. But things like you know. I, it's so you, you can see us the the gears turning in our brain as we try to figure out intellectually if there's a way around or through or over or under something in a way that's charming and makes the person confused and not want to punch us and we get we get away with it like I think most people look forward to the punishment part of the show yeah. the most I, I like the other part of it I yeah. like it when you're interacting with people when you're when you're pitching uh, 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 some ridiculous company and you know a show of hands who here feels they learned something yeah, today yeah. or whatever it is and just the looks on the faces of people the stuff that you have to say that that interaction that you have yeah. with regular people where you are you are doing something that is obviously outrageous and ridiculous, yeah. but you have to make it seem as though it is normal and try to convince them that they're experiencing a normal thing when, yeah. it, when in reality, obviously, it isn't. That, that is my favorite part of the show. You know what it is? We have normal societal boundaries. We're regular guys. We live in the world. We, we were raised to be gentlemen. We have normal boundaries, but with each other, we have no boundaries. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. we know so much about each other, and that's an inherent conflict in the show, which is funny to watch. Okay. That having been said, let's talk about the punishments. So for those people who do not watch Impractical Jokers, it it is basically the entire episode revolves around a series of contests, and whoever loses winds up having to do something extraordinarily humiliating, which is something we did on Mike and Mike for years. We did um, a punishment, and over the years I had to... Um, I had to dance with a, with a dancer from Dancing with the Stars. I had to milk a cow. I, a bunch <laughs> of stuff. You guys do some crazy stuff. So the two that stand out for me for you yeah. were one time they made you jump out of a plane. Yes. And I still cannot believe you did that. I went cry diving. <laughs> you did. You cried. I, I cried. I, I cried the entire way. I would never have done it. Cr- I would have retired from the show. I don't yeah. care if it has made me. I could not have jumped out of the no, plane. No, I, I, and I never will again. You know, the crazy thing about that is what's not on TV. You know, they, they, they had a uh, backup plan in case I said no. Because we made a gentleman's agreement in season one to never say no to a uh, punishment. And the punishments are so specific 
and honed for each of us individually that uh, they knew my you know my number one fear is uh, uh, equally uh, sharks and and skydiving you know heights I guess and uh, and when they they revealed it there that we, I had to jump out of the plane what's not on TV is I ran from set and locked myself in the bathroom at the place and I wouldn't come out for like a half hour really yes and I called my mother I FaceTimed my mom uh, to say goodbye because I was you know <laughs> and she sent me to voicemail and I was like wow come on you know because you're shopping she you know and uh, so I sent her a text saying I didn't tell her what was going on she'd kill me I just said I love you and I, I was terrified and I ultimately decided to go through with it because I knew that comedically it would work you know because it, it, it Sal would have done it as a backup because he's scared of heights too but he's already been skydiving so it wouldn't have been you know and I was like you know what let me let me let me do it and I'm glad I did. I will never do it again. And here's why. You remember back in grade school, right? Gravity is 9.88 meters per second squared. Okay. Which means that up until the last three seconds of skydiving, even when you're gently floating down on, with a, if the parachute fails uh, until the last three seconds, you still fall to your death. That's terrible odds. You would never play these odds in Vegas, right? I would not. I would never jump out of an airplane. Absolutely not. I still can't believe you did it. It was very funny. Yes. And and what was funny about it was the the fear was so obviously real. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't. There was. I mean, Lawrence Olivier could not have done (laughs) the job that you did if you weren't really that scared. Yeah. The other one. I have to believe this is the most famous one. I don't know how we judge these things. It was the one where you had a rectal exam <laughs> <laughs> um, in front of like a whole room full of people. And the look on your face. I'm a little older than you are, so I've been through this experience yeah. many times now, unfortunately. But not unfortunately. Everyone should do it. It's important. But I've been through that. So I know what it is you're so experiencing. So again, th- these are little details I'll add that the home audience doesn't realize. The guy who gave me those prostate exams, what the home audience doesn't know is he's, he's – yes, he's Dr. Frank. He's been on our show. He's been a friend of mine. He's my friend. He's not my doctor. He's a friend of mine for about 13 years now. Okay. So this is a friend of mine who happens to be a doctor giving me two prostate exams, which just ups the embarrassment for me even more. So it's just those little details that like, this is a, a, a buddy. I go out to dinner with him and his wife all the time. So yeah, not, not my, it is strange to me, by the way, that you've seen me naked. I think like, I know. Yeah, I don't, I've been I don't naked. Everyone has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, is it true that you guys don't actually don't know what it's going to be till you get there? No, I'm, I'm getting punished tonight. I don't know what they're going to do to me but they did ask me one question they said do you know how to roller skate oh i said yes but i mean i haven't roller skated in a decade two decades but yeah i can basically so maybe they're going to throw you off something or no shoot I'm you sure, out of a something i don't or... know but i'm sure there's some kind of twist to it that you know upsets somehow it's okay. i mean it's, it's such a good idea and it's fabulous what other ones stand out for you like the, of the, the, the iconic one for me I, I think this punishment works on every level they uh they i'm already you know i'm the only one kind of in shape about the four of us but i'm built like a baby carrot you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> look at me so anyways so uh, they say murray you got to compete in this box bodybuilding competition and they they strip me down put a little speedo on me they grease me up with like spray tan and lotion and i'm in the room with like 15 other guys that are ripped right and they're lifting weights and they're prepping for the competition and they piped the sounds of an actual competition into the room where we're being held and I look ridiculous. My, I already, I already have very no- pointy nipples. You can imagine what they're like now, right? I'm just like so nervous. And they, I hear the announcer say, oh, "Okay, next up, blah, blah, And they say, "You got to go in the room." There's like a hundred people in the room. Judges, go up, flex, do your thing. And I walk in, and there's no bodybuilding competition. It was all fake. Instead, 
in the room was my childhood crush, everybody's childhood crush, Danica McKellar, who played Winnie Cooper on The Wonder Years in the 80s, looking gorgeous in this like gorgeous pink gown. She looks like she hasn't aged a day. She looks spectacular. I'm disgusting. I'm dripping. And I, I, I didn't even know the guys knew her. And they reached out to her on Twitter. And she said, yeah, she, her family were fans of the show. They flew her out and they made me interview her like 2020 while I'm naked with my nipples pointing. <laughs> it was the, the most embarrassing moment of my life. And then they still made me squat and do like, you know, flexing. It, the punishment was so personal for me and it worked on every single level. It was physically embarrassing, emotionally mortifying. And, you know, that's, I mean, brilliant it's brilliant i love it is it is it my observation or it is my observation is it accurate you seem to be punished a disproportionate amount (laughs) of the time yeah right it feels like it's you twice for everyone else's yeah sal and i get the worst of it but we have the most uh you know neuroses i guess that's why but 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 you have to lose in order for that to happen yeah i I, you know yeah i lose a lot (laughs) i mean it's it is noticeable my favorite sal one i think my favorite punishment of all time just because i thought the writing was great was when he spoke at a wedding. Yeah, that's and, season two. And I don't even want to say what what he said on on the some of the lines, but the one about World War Two. Oh my god, is, yeah. is so brilliantly written. Out of context, it would be very offensive. Candidly, in context, it was offensive, and that's what was so funny about it. Who writes that stuff? You guys write uh, yeah, that yourselves. Yeah, the, the punishments. Well, we have now as the show has grown, we have a team of like comedy producers that help pitch challenge ideas to us, and we kind of refine them and go with them. But the show is ultimately an improv show. You right. know, we're making it up as we go because we don't know how people are going to react or what they're going to do. Uh, the punishments still, almost to this day, remain very much um, uh, with the four of us coming up with because they have to be so personal and nobody knows us better than each other. So, and the interesting thing is, you know, we just shot the Joker's movie. And the Joker's movie, uh, the, the TV show's non union, the Joker's movie's union uh, because it's a movie and, you know, we have a union crew and everything. So we were back to the, the roots of the show, which is the four of us wrote the movie. You know, like in season one and two, when we had no money to, uh, for for to staff up, we had no the show wasn't popular enough, and we had to write every single joke. Uh, and but ultimately, at the end, end of the day, it's um it's purely an improv show in, in disguise because improv is very hard to sell on TV. So it's uh just us kind of riffing and see what happens. We'll continue with more of my conversation with Murr in just a minute. But first, this word from LinkedIn. You know the right hire can make a huge impact on your business, right? And that is why it is so important to find the right person. Now, where do you find that individual? You could try posting on job boards, but can you really be sure the right person sees your job? Instead, you should find the person who will help you grow your business by using LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn literally every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, their interests, even how open they are to new opportunities. That way, your job gets seen by more of the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities, so you can only reach them on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. And businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So here's what you do. Hurry to LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. You'll get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. Get $50 off the first job post. LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. Terms and conditions apply. You mentioned something I was going to get to later. You said that 
people are constantly suggesting to you competitions. Yeah. But I got one. Okay. <laughs> Pitcher, so, what do you got? Okay, so my son Steven and I, who is your biggest fan, yeah. um, he's 15. This just happened not that long ago. We're having dinner in a restaurant, and we greatly overorder. So we got a ton of extra food. And so we're walking back to the apartment, and we're walking right through Madison Square Park, where you guys have shot a million uh, episodes. We've seen you there yeah. many times watching the episode. We get excited because we know where you are. And I've got all this food, and there are any number of homeless people, you know, in the park. And sure. so we're Stevie and I say, oh, we're going to give this, you know, give the food to someone. And he says to me, "Wouldn't it be funny if we tried to give it to someone who's obviously not, not homeless? <laughs> oh my god, like someone yeah. sitting there like in a suit." Yeah. And the impractical, he says to me, "Dad, the impractical jokers, and you have to walk up to randomly very well dressed people, yeah. and say, look, I'm so sorry to see you're obviously down on your luck. Yeah. We, we couldn't finish all of this. Would you like this? <laughs> yeah. And if you can't make them eat at least something that you give them, that's, you lose. That's a good one. It's a good idea. It's a great idea. Do it. We're, okay. You can have it. I, it's, it, it. Isn't that a good idea? It's a great idea. It's totally in line with our show. For we sure. were so proud of it did what? you see the punishment a few weeks ago it aired um we made q you know what uh, long island cares is like this great organization that raises food and money for homeless in yeah. long island and uh, uh and poor families they um they have this giant warehouse in long island where volunteers come in and they sort through it almost looks like costco you know they have these, these giant shelves of food that's been donated or that they buy using uh, donations and they put together smaller they take the the items off the shelf put it together in smaller bags to ship out to needy families of you know all sorts of food and things like that. Yeah. And they have volunteers that help power the whole thing, right? So we made Q volunteer stuffing these bags full of food. Uh-huh. And his punishment was very, very simple. Q, in front of the other volunteers, you have to start eating this food. <laughs> these are, this is food for the homeless. And people, it was so nerve-wracking. So I like your idea. We'll yes, do it. it's a good idea. I'm telling you, please use it. I you will does. be so proud if I'm watching an episode one day we gotta have and you, you guys are doing our idea. Well, listen, I mean, I'm no Joey Fatone, but I would be <laughs> delighted to do it. You know, we just did a punishment um, uh, with the MLB, uh, you know, sports, uh, you know, where they have their the, the whole playing field where they do a lot of the broadcast from. We filmed a punishment over there. We should do something over here. Okay. Right? I would be. Th- oh, let's talk about that offline because okay. I would be thrilled to do that. Um, okay. Next topic. <laughs> Next topic. Murr has a degree in English from Georgetown. Yes. I will be honest with you. When I, st- I, I have watched you guys religiously. I didn't know that. I've never Googled you. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a fan of the show. I don't. When I saw that, I will admit to having been quite surprised. Yeah. I really will. <laughs> Do people find it surprising? And now as I sit here talking to you, you're the guy on Impractical Jokers who, 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 who self-described looks like a ferret. Yes. <laughs> and who I have seen go through all these punishments you've gone through. Yeah. But you are a, an extraordinarily literate, like, person, and you have an English degree from Georgetown. Yes. Are others surprised when they learn that about I you? I think so. I mean, you know, again, when, when you, when you see me, uh, uh, getting my eyebrows shaved on TV, yeah. <laughs> you're like, he doesn't look that smart. Uh, no, but I, I was the, uh, the smart one growing up. And, you know? uh, and you told me a few minutes ago, that your next door neighbor at Georgetown was Alan Iverson. I need a story. Yeah. I mean, there has to be there, a story. There are stories. Yeah, we were. I mean, we lived in Copley Hall together. He was literally next door to my roommates and I, on the same floor, same you know. And uh, and back then, I kind of BS'd my way into a, a job at, with Coca Cola, right? And I became the on campus representative for Coca Cola, which is a total made up position. I literally made it up, sent in a pitch proposal, and they said, "Sure, let's do it." And uh, basically, it was a, a, not a scam. Yeah, but I, I used to like do promos on campus, and I also used to buy Coca Cola at cost. So I used to get it for like twelve cents a bottle. And in Copley Hall, the the soda machine used to run out all the time. So everybody in the dorm knew that I sold Coke 
coke you out of the coke room. Dealer. I was a coke dealer. <laughs> a coke dealer. That's actually a, a funny so, line unto itself. It, it is. You're the worst coke so, dealer of all time. So You're when selling the Coca-Cola. machine would run out, go up to Mer's room, and he would sell you a co- – he kept a fridge stocked with cold coke, and he used to sell it for two bucks to pop. It was a nice little uh, bump, you know, because yeah. Georgetown's an expensive school. you got to do what you can. So, uh, so one night – um, I was sitting in his roommate, uh, Bubrakar Ow, who was another basketball player yeah. in Georgetown, uh, uh, knocked on the door. It's like four in the morning, they bang on the door. <laughs> so, and, uh, and, and they, op- I open it up and say, yeah, how can I help you guys? And, uh, they say, uh, yeah, we need to buy a cook. <laughs> We need to borrow a Coke and a condom. <laughs> I guess they, they were having some kind of things going on. So I sold uh, Bubakar Al and Alan Iverson Coke, a Coke and a condom. Oh, what did <laughs> yeah. you get for the condom? I, I think I charged two bucks. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so. That's crazy. I mean, that, of all the people to have room next to, um, that's really remarkable. Yeah, like, I, and, when, I, when I looked you up, I was hoping you would be a similar age to John Mulaney, who I know also was oh, yeah, an yeah, English yeah. major at Georgetown, but I you would have been the, there before him. Yeah, he was there. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly he's, right. he's young, much younger. He, you're much younger than me, and he's much younger than you. So, but, but 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 Alan Iverson that must have been unbelievable to have just observed him. It was. I mean, he was uh, obviously a legend back then, even. And we all knew that he he you know he's going to leave, and that was his last year, the sophomore year at Georgetown. Unbelievable. Okay. Driving. I also learned in looking you up that you had a bit part in the movie Private Parts, <laughs> the Howard Stern movie. I had fantastic hair back then. You see, I was an extra in the movie. I didn't. I didn't even know that. I, yeah. I just I looked at as I was I googled you just to get a few things like that. You so you. At, I, what in, did you do in, in the movie? In college, I I, I uh, was cast as an extra in Private. Parts parts and uh for some reason in this big group scene when uh uh, stern is kind of walking down in his college years i'm right in front of him and the camera finds me because he's right behind me and the camera follows the two of us for a good eight ten seconds in the movie so i'm pretty prominently i'm a prominent extra if you will and uh no kidding on campus i used to get stopped people like were you in private parts for years for years and then it faded away and then Jokers came around, and fans found it, and then it resurfaced all over again. So, so you guys just strike me as though you would have been Howard Stern fans. So that has to have been a thrill it, if I'm reading. It was that a right. thrill. It was a thrill. And then nobody still has found. I used to do tons of like extra work on One Life to Live, and Saturday Night Live. Really? Yes. And I, I used to play the same character on One Life to Live. I, I played like a reporter who always came in at the wrong time and snapped a photo he wasn't supposed to. You know, like if somebody's, you know, having an affair, I'd kind of peer in from the side, snap the photo, and kind of lurk back into the darkness. Fans haven't found it yet, but I'm in multiple episodes. Oh, that's phenomenal. I, I, I feel like just based upon your whole thing – this was just a guess on my part, and it would never have occurred to me until I read that you were an extra in his movie, that yeah. Howard Stern would have been an inspiration for you guys. Do I have that right? Was well, he yeah, a big I mean, deal Q to you guys? and Sal are mega, mega fans of Stern. You know, they've been on his the wrap-up show and stuff like that. And, I mean, that's our generation, of course. Yeah. You know, for sure. Yeah, and and, and but so who were your comedic? Because you, you obviously comedy was something that you didn't just come to by accident. Yeah, I will tell you the, 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 you know, people ask, like, who's the most famous person you met or what's the, the craziest fan you, you know, um, uh, relationship you formed. Uh, for me and for, I'm, for the guys too, uh, a couple of years ago, we were at the, the Wild West Comedy Festival in Nashville, right? And uh, one of these featured, uh, the two of the featured guests there at the festival were the Zucker brothers, David and, and Jerry Zucker, who made Airplane, The sure. Naked Gun. I mean, you know, they did a number of the, um, the, um, the scary movies as well. Uh, they made Ghost. With Patrick Swayze, mm-hmm. um, comedy legends, right? And uh, I, that's 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 for me. That's it. That's the holy grail. You know, Mel Brooks, the Zucker Brothers. That's it. My father and I used to watch every Nick Gun, every you know, every of all of their movies constantly growing up. I can name every single line. I can see, you know. And uh, I got to meet them, and um, and they didn't know the show, um, but their 
kids knew the show. And so we sent them a couple of DVDs of the season. And like a month later, an email comes in. It's like a Saturday night. It's like midnight, right, on Saturday. An email comes in from David Zucker. And it says, um, r- roughly to the effect of, guys, I just finished watching uh, a couple of seasons of the show. I have to tell you, I can't watch your show for more than 15 minutes at a time because the tears are streaming down my face from laughing so much. It is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And this is from the Zucker brothers. Yeah. And, uh, Sal framed the email and had Zucker sign it. And now it's, it's, it's one of the proudest things in my life like that. I can call the Zucker brothers friends of mine. And, you know, David Zucker has been on the Joker's cruise, uh, every year and he does screenings of his movies and we go out to dinner. And I can't believe I'm in a position in my life that one of my idols growing up is now a fan of mine. It's great. That is great. All right. So I've never gotten a sense from watching you guys and I don't, I don't know you at all. I've never gotten a sense any of you are big sports fans. I mean, I'm a sportscaster. Obviously, this is mostly a sports podcast. Do I have that right? Are any of you very into sports? We're, uh, well, I mean, Sal's a huge sports fan. I know, I know Sal and Q had Yankee season tickets for years. My whole life, my whole life, from generations of Murrays, I mean, from, from the 50s or maybe even earlier, we've had Giants season tickets. So I grew up going to see Giants games live. Um, with my dad, my grandfather, and you know my cousins and things like that. Uh, they're huge sports fans, though, for sure. So, and I, I like playing sports because I, I've never noticed. Like it would seem unnatural, especially with what I would envision much of the audience being, which is sort of like a young male demographic, yeah. which everyone on TV is trying to get, and it's very hard to get. That some sort of sports connection to what you're doing would be a natural if you were very well, connected we do to a, it. We do a ton of sports punishments. I mean, we've done uh, you know professional soccer in the the London episode. We had Joe and I getting uh, soccer balls hit at us. We played dodgeball. We've done. I a remember ton the of dodgeball ball. punishments. We did a uh, Noah Syndergaard uh, last uh, a few episodes ago, where Joe had to catch balls in the stand that he was throwing to kids and steal the balls from the, the children uh we just did a punishment with mlb uh we've done a couple of wrestling punishments we do a ton of sports related okay, stuff i haven't i don't know that i've seen those but i need to go find them yeah. okay one last question about the show and then there's other things now that you guys have become well known I have to believe, and I've seen it mentioned every now and again on an episode where people that you're walking up to in a supermarket are like, oh, yeah, I know who you guys are. So how do you pull off doing the challenges that require people believing the fact that you're walking up and you need a signature for some ridiculous thing when they know who you are and thus they know you're pranking them? Uh, Two things. First, New York City has 10 million people. It's not that hard. You know what I mean? There's so many. So the second thing is- How often are you walking up to people now and they're saying, don't start with me. I know exactly who you are. One out of three times. Okay. So, but the two out of three is still enough to make the show. Um, I'll, I'll, the other day I did a, a, a live broadcast showing fans exactly how we do it. We were filming in Fort Greene Park and, um, we were teaching, uh, like, uh, outdoor survival skills, like how to build a tent, things like that. And we had these, these groups of people coming up, like maybe five or six people in each class in the middle of the park. And, um, half a mile away in the park, they walk these people by. These people uh, apply to a group. They're going to come in. They want to learn how to do outdoor stuff. And our producers meet them, prep them for what's going to happen. They don't know they're on a TV show at all, right? And they walk by the fountain in the park. Sitting on the edge of the fountain, I'm waiting there on my phone texting. And I make sure as they walk by to look at every single one of them. And if any one of the people, the five in that group, recognizes me, you can always tell. We, I, I signal to the producer who they are, and they pull those people out of the group oh. before they get into the main group, so they can't infect the whole group. So the, the three people who remain stay. They don't know who I am, and and then we bring in two new people, like test them. We call it the sniff test to make sure they don't know who I am, and then they go into a scene with Sal. 
So they, if they recognize me, they're going to recognize him. And that's how we keep the show pure. The show must be real or it doesn't work. Oh. And it's clearly real. That's brilliant. Okay, that's really yeah. good. I wonder if like that. that's very smart. But every now and again, like I heard a guy in a supermarket. I don't remember exactly what you were doing. Yeah. But I heard, I remember hearing a guy on TV in, in an episode. Yeah. This was a more recent one, maybe last season, saying, oh, I know you guys. I watched the show. Sometimes and I said we that keep it in. It's funny because yeah. we still screw with people, you know? And we, 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 we always play off like, oh, no, yeah, yeah, you love, you love the show? Great. They never think they're on the show. They think we're just there in the supermarket shop because they only see one of us. But don't they see the cameras? Where are no, the cameras? cameras? Where are they hidden? Like, <laughs> I mean, if you're in a supermarket, say how this? are they hiding cameras? I'm sorry, Mike. I gotta say because it's a joke from the show. I don't yeah. mean to curse. Uh, the cameras are up your ass and to the left. Yeah, that's, that's a joke from the show. <laughs> no, I like it's a joke it. from the show. No, I, I know that, but I mean, yeah. but they literally are hidden. They're, so you're telling yeah, me people you, don't see them? No, they don't see. Because I know that you've. I've seen many times you guys will have a cup of coffee or something that I know there's a microphone, a microphone in yeah. it. But but I don't. I mean, I feel like I'm seeing so many angles of this. Well, we just finished. We just filmed in the park the other day and the cameras weren't well hidden because in a park they're really hard how right? you're in so washington square how, park how are you hiding well, these our cameras crew, so last week our crew dressed up in construction outfits and set up like a fake construction site and they had a tripod in the middle of the site filming the the people long lens but it was so but they weren't doing anything they weren't jackhammering they weren't doing anything and we we're like what's going on and, and so a, a guy comes up and says yeah, is that camera filming and that one he pointed out all the cameras and we f- swung the camera around it is ridiculous how obvious they were we're like Guys, hi, do something. Yeah. So sometimes we don't we don't do it well. I always wonder about that. Okay, yeah. let's talk about the guys. Tell me about Q. Q. Q was my first friend in high school. Literally, we did improv together. He was in all the plays with me. We were the closest at first, you know, and we became friends first. He's the most charming uh, son of a bee you'll ever meet in your life. He's um, he gets away with murder because he's incredibly charming. And he's, you know, he seems um, of of all of you. Uh, just watching it on TV, he seems the least naturally comfortable in, in the interactions, right? He, he seems like more, a slightly more of an introverted person. Do yeah, I well, have that I right? I mean, you know, he, he was, uh, or the most formed out of the four of us when we started on TV, you know? And he was a, a successful fireman and a proud fireman and loved the job, loved the job. He already, it was interesting. He already had a career that he loved and was good at. Uh, you know, so he was, uh, you know, it was the toughest transition, I'd say, for him to jump into TV, for sure. How about uh, Sal? Tell me about Sal. Sal, I describe as the heart of the show. I really do. You know, he wears his heart on on his face and on his sleeve. No I, one laughs like that guy laughs. Yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Watching him laugh while something else is happening. He's like off watching a monitor, you know, when one of you is doing something. And just watching him laugh is contagious. Yeah, I, I think he's... Uh, um, He's just the funniest guy you'll ever meet in your life. He's but brilliant, he, brilliantly funny. But he's also, he's, I mean, the germophobia stuff, the stuff with his sister. Yeah. Like, that's all real, right? I mean, he's yeah. very, he seems very sensitive about things. Well, in high school, from high school, who does this in high school? He had a list of seven things he hates. Sweat, common cold, strong wind, bugs, filth, uh, uh, <laughs> traffic, and... I can't remember the seventh. Uh, you know, who good. does that in high school? Like in high school, you know, and so he's that neurotic, but he's also that, that that's so real and fun. And he's the most brilliant uh, comedian I ever met. And and then there's Joe, who, who, if you had to ask me who makes me laugh the most, I feel like it's him yeah. most of the time. And then I follow all of you on Twitter. And I will say that his thing, for lack of a better word, seems to be kindness. Like the way he interacts with people yeah. on Twitter. I'm not talking about on the show. 
um, it's it's inspiring to me. Like I, he seems like just the sweetest person. Yeah. Who does not come off that way on television? On the TV show, you know, he's got all this bravado. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to be that that way in in reality. Joe is fiercely loyal. He's a uh, uh, you know the best friend you'd ever want in your life. Uh, fiercely loyal. He's a family man. He. It's interesting. Our lives have all kind of gone different directions. He. He's. He's embraced that. He. You know, family. He's got kids and dogs and does lots of charity work. And his. Hey, his. His sisters. He's very close with them and the nieces and nephews and everything. And um, he's amazingly loyal. He is on the show. Of course, he's outrageously funny. And he. And he's been like that since high school. I mean, he would do just anything to get a laugh. You know, to to. And I think that was that came from a place of. Um, of kind of being awkward as a kid and not not you know knowing what to do and then we started making people laugh they liked him for it and he ran with it and now he's it's gotten so extreme because he he was really and his his parents were the same way his father was very very funny and his mother was hysterical and they were shameless and he adopted that and, and ran with it and he's um he's outrageous but also fiercely loyal. That's a great word, shameless. I was going to use the word fearless. Like, I don't think I've ever seen him say, no, I won't do that. Like, all the rest of you will say no to something. Yeah. He'll do anything. Yeah, he, he does it to make us react. He's doing it to screw with us. Not not to, you know, he does it because he knows we don't believe he'll do it. And that makes him do it. He, he's he's just, I, I look, I love all of you in your own ways. Um Three more things I want to talk about. Let's talk about the live shows. Yeah. I've never been to one, but I see you guys tour all you the let time. Me know when you come. I would love okay. to come. Um, and I happened to see that you were, I, I went to Northwestern, whatever. We were, we were, Northwestern was playing in the Allstate Arena last year. You guys were playing there the next day. Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, saying to my son, we should stay and see them. And it just didn't work out. What happens in the live shows? Uh, the live show, I mean, I love even more than the TV show because we come from a live show background, you know? So now to be playing, you know, when you do a hidden camera show, you have no idea how the show is affecting fans. And when you go to the live show, it is as close to being a rock star as we'll ever get. Because it's, you see there's like thousands of people holding up signs and posters and t-shirts they made and families there, you know, supporting us. It really is unbelievable. And the live show, the four of us on stage is like a stand-up comedy show. There's a giant screen behind us. We shot hidden camera challenges just for the live show. We can't see anywhere else. Oh. And those challenges are a bit more outrageous than the TV show. We get, you know, we're a little bit more daring. And, uh, it's, it's like, Going to see, hang out with your best friends for a night. It's extremely funny. It, it's like we're riffing on it with each other. We're telling each stories from set, from our lives. We rip into each other a lot, like from the TV on on the TV show. And the videos are fantastically funny. Um, it, it, it's it's like a rock concert with your best friends. I always wondered that. So so you do do the hidden camera stuff in the live shows you'll as well. See, you're seeing you'll that see stuff. challenges we just shot for the live show you can't see anywhere else. Oh, yet. okay. That really does sound good because you guys play huge venues now, I yeah. see. I mean, obviously the garden being the mecca of everything, but I was, as I became interested in interviewing you guys, I went to see and you're touring. I mean, you, you tour all over the place. You are, yeah. you are all over the country. We did a uh, five nights sold out at the O2 in London. In London. crazy. That is incredible. And your book. So that brings us to the book. So the book is called Awakened. Yeah. And if I read this correctly, because I follow all you guys on Twitter, did I see that your book was number one on the bestseller list in the UK? Yes, Am I getting number that right? one on the international bestseller list. How cool is that? That's incredible Thank to you. me. I've done a few books. I know, I know. this game. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 
That is unbelievable. Thank you, sir. So, so tell us, first of all, the book is a science fiction yes, book. Tell right. us about the book. Okay, I'll tell you the story of the book first yeah. and how it happened. So, you know, I have a degree in English. I always dreamt of writing a book. My father always wanted to write a novel and is a few credits short of a master's. And he got drafted and then had a family and never got to write a book. And uh, I always dreamt of writing a novel one day. So um, I spent a year – I wrote this book 14 years ago. Long before TV, the guys and I were regular guys from Staten Island. We had no contacts in the business. We didn't know anybody who works for TV. We didn't um, audition to get cast. We weren't discovered. We just worked really hard for a long time and failed a lot before we succeeded. The book's the same story. I wrote it 14 years ago. I spent a year of my life writing this action-packed, fast-paced thriller that takes place in the subways of New York City. It's like a, a, your best summer beach reading you'll ever have. Like, you know, you flip the pages and fly through it. Spent a year writing it. At the end of the year, I sent it out unsolicited because I had no agent or manager or lawyer to every publisher in New York, and it got returned to me unopened by every single one. They wouldn't even open the envelope, Mike, to read it. It was crazy. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I just wasted a year of my life. And it sat there on my computer for 14 years. And like a year and a half ago, I was like, you know what? Let me pick that book up. Let me read it again. I read through it. I was like, this is great. This is really good. It's well-written. It's so tight. So I sent the exact same book out to HarperCollins. This time I had an agent, lawyer, whatever. And they bought the trilogy from me immediately, right? And uh, it's a thriller called Awakened. It is in stores now, or you can get it online at awakenednovel.com. The story is this. In the near future, New York City builds a new subway line called the Z Train. It's like a super fast, high-tech bullet train. Underneath the East River, right here, they build an underwater visitor's pavilion. It's glass, steel, super high-tech and modern. Very cool. It's the hub where all the trains meet. The inaugural run of the train in the pavilion is the mayor, the president, press covering the event. On the train itself is the mayor's wife and like a hundred lucky New Yorkers. When the train goes through the tunnel and rolls into the underwater pavilion, all the passengers, including the mayor's wife, are missing. The cars are covered in blood. There's like bloodied crimson handprint in the wall. And the windows are shattered outward. And what you come to learn in Awakened is that what's going on secretly underneath New York City is far more terrifying than anything you could ever imagine. It is the best summer beach reading you'll ever have in your life. That is a great sell. I mean, that, that is fascinating, and I'm delighted to hear about it, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Um, and and and, But the reaction to it, like, number one on the international bestseller list. I don't know if people listening to this conversation recognize <laughs> how hard it is to be number one on the international bestseller list. How does that happen? How, I get that you you guys have gotten to be really big, and, and I'm one of millions of people who are fans of yours. But to have a novel be number one on the international bestseller list is unbelievable. Thank you. It's, it's, it's um, honestly, I, 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 it's the fan base is so, you know, ravenous. They, they, our fan base is so supportive of everything we do. They support Sal's stand-up when he does stand-up outside of Jokers. They support Q's, uh, he has a, a graphic novel, comic book coming out called Metro. They support all Joe's charity work. And when I, I put out the, the, you know, that did this book, the fan base latched onto it. And then the book's really good too. So when they read it, I think they first bought it because they wanted to support the guys and I and believed in the idea of who we are. Uh, and, uh, and the hard work we put into our careers. And when they started reading it, then it, it hit that this is a really good novel. And then it just spread. So, yeah, you know, it's our fan base and, and the word of mouth that they've put out there for the and, book. And, and that, so that fan base, because now you'll be telling me something I didn't otherwise know, how significant is it internationally? Like, you get outside of the United States, your show, obviously, I saw you did all these concerts in London. Yeah. So it, it is, your show is successful 
All over Europe? Where, yeah, where we, we, they... well, the American version of Jokers plays in well over 100, 120 countries around the 120 world. 120 countries? Yeah, I think I think the whole the t- final count is like 133 countries or something. And then we sell the format for the show, too, to other countries, to like 20, 30 other countries, have original versions of Jokers where we recast the four of us and adapt it for the local country, you know? But the American version plays around the world and is the like the number one show on Comedy Central in, uh, in the UK, the number one show on Comedy Central in India, number one show on the Comedy Central in uh, Italy and all around, you know, on, and in most of, most of the world it plays on Comedy Central or TBS, you know, because there is no true TV in those sure. countries. And uh, it's it's been uh, unbelievable, the, the ride. That is fantastic. And then the movie. So I also saw from you guys on Twitter that you were filming a movie. There was an yeah. Impractical Jokers movie coming. Comes out next year. Comes out next year. Tell me about this. It, oh my God. I can't say too much other than this. They did something to me on the movie. The movie has like, it's a cross-country hidden camera movie, right? So there's like a narrative of beginning and end that sets us on this journey to compete in practical Joker style and challenges. And most of the movie's improv, you know? And to uh, get to the end of the movie to find out who loses and gets punished in a spectacular way. But the movie has many punishments throughout. Like there's like eight different punishments in the movie. And they did something to me in the movie. Mike, that is 100 times more embarrassing than Danica McKellar. A hundred times. Really? It, I will never recover. It changed my life. There's, <laughs> there's a life before that moment and a life after that moment. I'm now in this new reality. When When is it in theaters? It comes – well, I don't know the date yet, but, the, the, you know, come out next Sometime year. Sometime next year. Yes. Okay. I'm excited. Will there be a big premiere and everything? Yeah, hell okay. yeah. you got to come. So, so that would be where I'd like to finish the conversation, and that is I started it by saying that I think people who are fans of you guys who have been for a long time feel almost a proprietary sense of ownership because – like you are like four guys I know. I've never met you before in my entire life, and I've never met I've even even now I've never met Q or Sal or Joe. But I feel like we're friends. Like, yeah. I feel like these guys are my friends, and they are this huge success. And 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 I'm so happy for you. Um, and I have to believe that's the way other people feel. That's why they buy your book, and that's why. Not, yeah. not, I'm sure the book is phenomenal. I'm going to read it starting today. Yeah. But that's why they support the charities and all, because people feel like you're their friends. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, uh, I mean, we are friends now, Mike. Like, you yeah. Know, well, now we are. But, now I mean, and literally 45 minutes ago, we had never met. Sometimes, though, people get too comfortable with us as a result. You know, like, I'm out to dinner. I mean, it happens every week. You know, somebody will walk up to my table where I'm eating dinner and they'll reach over and they'll grab food off my plate and eat it. Right. Because you know, they saw me do it on the show. You know, it's, it's a little much. But that's a wonderful. So, so I, I, I can't speak for you. Similar things to that will happen to me every now and again. No yeah. one ever eats food off my plate. But but similar things. People will, for lack of a better word, intrude upon your life. And I always say to everyone's like, does that bother you? No, it's the best thing in the world. Sure. And that goes back to the first conversation we had. Because I remember when I was doing a show and I was the only one who knew I was doing a show. No one gave a damn that I was doing a show. So the notion that people are actually interested enough to come over and say hello yeah. is, is it's so gratifying that it's – it, it definitely becomes a net positive rather than a For sure. And it means experience. the show has impacted their life in a positive way, which is great. The, the crazy story I have is um, I was at Giant Stadium a few years ago. And, uh, you know, Giant Stadium, they, you know, all the urinals are right in a row. Yeah. And there's no divider. It's really uncomfortable. You know, you're like shoulder to shoulder with these uh-huh. dudes and like six guys behind you in line. So it's like uh, halftime and I go to use a men's room. And uh, I'm, I'm there. And I'm doing my business. And the guy to my left recognizes me and, and leans over, which is already uncomfortable. He yeah. leans over and goes, 
am I in the show right now? I was like, dude, we're in the men's room at Johnny Stadium. No, we're not filming the show. Are you nuts? Wouldn't be a bad place to do it, though, actually. Yeah. There is an idea in the whole stage fright urinal kind of concept that would not be a bad one. Yeah. Well, that's in the in the pilot episode. We had a, a bathroom challenge. I it never aired. I'm not, it never, it never aired. aired. Okay. I, so I, say, I don't think I've ever saw it. All right, so, so in closing, if – you had made the opposite choice. You talked about a fork in the road yeah. that you that you encountered. You could have sold the concept. Maybe it would have made you guys a, a little bit of money. Let, let's just say, for the, let's go down that path of sure. your lives. You sold it, made you guys some, not life-changing money, just some money. What would you be doing now? Uh, I would still be, doing, I guess, doing TV development. I, I'd try, try to still do the book. Uh, in another universe, I was an architect, I think. I would have loved to go in that route. Uh, I, in no universe would I be an athlete. I just don't have it in me. As I said, baby carrot. (laughs) But, but, but I mean, in your life, like, would you have felt, if this had never happened for you, would you have felt unfulfilled in some way? Yeah, I think, uh, the four of us are creative guys. I think we would have, I I like to think we would have kept going. I do. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I feel blessed to be, to have, uh, wound up with four, three best friends that, are so immensely talented, I have to think that we would have stumbled onto another idea and would have kept going. Well, again, the book is called Awakened. Um, it is a monstrous success. I am looking forward to reading it starting today. The movie, the Impractical Jokers movie, comes out next year. This show is still running extremely strong on True TV, and we sit and watch old episodes of it constantly in my house. And, and it is, I think, in this era, at the, at the, in the day and time in which we live, where it feels like every single day you were just being beaten over the head. Uh, there was one line I remember somewhere, and again, I don't do any political conversation, but that somewhere on some TV show that I saw is, I just want to go one day of my life yeah. without a breaking news alert that scares me to death. <laughs> um, so to have 25 minutes of my day that I just sit and watch you guys, it really, and, and, and for my whole family, like it has been, it's hard to explain, but it has been meaningful beyond just fun. Uh, so I thank you. I thank you for doing this, of and I, I am really delighted to meet you. And thank and you very you see, much. When you see your challenge on TV next season, do this, it. This is where we got it. I'm this is telling where we got you. The idea. And we both said it out loud. We literally, we know the show so We both said, and if, if you can't get someone to eat your food, <laughs> yeah. you, you lose. lose. <laughs> hey, thank you, Murray. Thank Thanks, you so much. A thank pleasure you. to Appreciate meet it. you. All right, that was our conversation with James Murray, known to the world as Murr. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I hope. Um, that a lot of you who are fans of that show, maybe you're hearing this conversation for the first time, will come back because um, these are the kinds of discussions I have really enjoyed having here on I'm Interested. And if you have enjoyed this, I hope you will take just a moment and do this for me. I would love you to subscribe and to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Um, that would be doing me a huge favor, and it will only take you a moment. So that was great fun. We'll be back with another interesting interview next week. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I'm Mike Greenberg. I'm interested, and I'll see you soon.